as we are picking up in Hebrews, um, just continuing to go through Hebrews, and we're finishing up chapter 7, which is kind of like the exclamation point on Jesus as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so you guys got a really expansive and exhaustive kind of like explanation of what that means and why it's important last week. Um, And this week, we're just going to unpack it a little bit. And so we're slowing down this week. We only have three verses to cover, but they are rich. And they're kind of making sense of everything that came before it. Um, And so it's a a great text. So we're going to be in chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. You can um, follow along with me. Let's read God's word together. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you. Um, We thank you for this book. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And God, as we dive into the depths of how you have revealed yourself to us, we realize that we do not become masters of this. We don't exhaust the knowledge that you have revealed to us, but that it actually masters us and that we are humbled as we approach the wonders of the mystery of who you are and how you love us. And so, Lord, I ask this morning that you would open that up for us once more, that you would give us just a little bit more, bring us a little bit deeper into your presence by your word and through your spirit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reminded of a poem that has meant a lot to me because it essentially was the moment that I knew that I wanted to study English literature a little bit more. The poem is Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats. Um, And I'll try and explain it simply (laughs) because it's a very confusing poem, which is why I liked it. But it's essentially a poem about a guy who's looking at this urn. And on this urn is painted different murals of different things. And all of these different pictures have something in common. And the thing that they share in common is that it's a picture of beauty. And so there's a picture of a man laying down in kind of like this beautiful green arbor playing a flute for his, um, for his lover. There's a picture of the moment right before a bride and a groom kiss for the first time. There's a picture of children playing. All of these things that we see that are beautiful. But the irony of the poem is that these pictures are still, they're frozen in time. And they're drawn on an urn, which holds ashes. And so the poem is kind of a lament, but also kind of a celebration of human beauty 
And what we see when we see something beautiful, what we long for, what we think about, what we want, what we desire. And so I want to ask you that to kind of help us understand this text this morning is what did you want the last time that you saw something really beautiful? Maybe it was a sunrise or a sunset. Maybe it was um, the Shenandoah Valley. Maybe it was just the delicacy of a flower. Maybe it was when your sports team finally won the championship. All of these things are different experiences of beauty. And here is what I would say we all do and all want when we are confronted with something truly beautiful. We want to bottle it. We want to hit pause. We want to stop time. Why? Because we want it to last. We want to live in that beautiful moment forever. The poem acknowledges that desire, but it doesn't offer any hope for actually being able to do that. It just says, well, I guess the best we can do is draw a picture on an urn. Stop it. Pause it right before you enter into that moment of beauty, just so that we can enjoy the anticipation of it. And I thought about this because as I was looking at this text, this first verse really was just kind of jumping off the page at me because it's describing Jesus. And it's using different words that almost mean the same thing to describe him. So if you look at the text in verse 26, it says that it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So those words, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, they all are kind of synonymous. It's kind of re-emphasizing one thing about who Jesus is as our high priest. And I would say that the thing that it's emphasizing is it's emphasizing his beauty. That's what holiness is. That's what innocence is. That's what being unstained or pure is. That's what it means when it says separated from sinners. It's saying not in the way of sinners. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 1. He's not standing in the way of sinners. He's not in the seat of scoffing. He's separated from that, and he's exalted. So he's held up. He's portrayed for everyone to see, and he's above. He's better than everything. He's beautiful. All of that is still a little bit abstract, And so it's helpful to go back to the life of Christ to make this real. And here's where I want to take you. I want to take you back to Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus because I think it will help us grasp what we want when we think about Jesus being beautiful. Zacchaeus is a tax collector, which means that he is making a lot of money by exploiting his own people. So in the Roman Empire, they had a habit of making 
the people or a person of the people group that they're kind of subjugating in their empire, the tax collector, the one responsible for collecting the taxes. And the deal that they have with these people is like, hey, we are going to collect X amount of money from you. You can keep however much else you can get from the rest of the people. And so tax collectors were despised. They were hated. They were betrayers of their people. They were stealing. They were lying. They were hated. They were seen as the lowest kind of sinner. And so Zacchaeus is a, an especially kind of comic version of this because he's also very short in stature. And he has kind of like that short man syndrome or complex where he's like, I have a need to know what's going on and to be seen. And I'm not going to let my height get in the way of that. And so as Jesus is entering into Zacchaeus's town, Zacchaeus can't see over the other people of like who this person is that has a great acclaim, a great following coming in. And he wants Jesus to recognize him. That's like his deepest longing, not because of who Jesus is, but because of Zacchaeus' own ego. He wants to be seen as important. And so in order to see and be seen, he climbs up a tree. And Jesus sees him. And Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, which is not at all what you would expect. It's not at all what he was supposed to do as the Messiah of Israel. He was not supposed to invite himself over to the worst sinner's house. He was supposed to meet with the scribes and the Pharisees and talk about how good they were and all the different ways where they were going to overthrow the Roman Empire and reestablish Israel as the dominant power in the world. That's not what Jesus did. He invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. And so Zacchaeus has him over, and now all of a sudden, we don't get a ton of information about what happens, but something changes for Zacchaeus. He sits down with Jesus, and we don't know what Jesus said. We don't know how he did this. But something about the interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus completely melted Zacchaeus' heart. He was honored by a beautiful person. He would have recognized and experienced, experienced the character of Jesus sitting down to eat with him. And Zacchaeus no longer wanted the honor for himself. He wanted Christ to be honored. And so what he did is kind of infamously, he went back and repaid the entire town. He gave everything, not as a way of earning or trying to impress Jesus. Jesus had already honored him. But because he was now following after the beauty of the character of Jesus that he just experienced. And this is what it looks like for Jesus to be called holy, innocent, exalted above the heavens. I experienced this a little bit in a different way when we were in Colorado a couple weeks ago. We went and had dinner with a couple that are really good friends with us, and they're older. They're about 20 years older than us, maybe a little bit more. 
Um, and me and Elizabeth just went over to their house and had dinner with them. And their house is nice, but it's not amazing. Um, and that we had a great meal, but it, wasn't, it was nothing like crazy. But having the ability to sit down and to share a table with people who are so close to Christ, it left us wanting more. It, we had that experience of like, I just want to hit pause, and I just want to be here. And they were selfless. They were concerned about us. They wanted to hear about our lives. They weren't self-interested. They, there was nothing for them to gain in sitting down with us. We were just taking from them <laughs> completely. And they just enjoyed that. And there's a beauty, a moral beauty in their character that points to the beauty of Christ in this way. And I was reminded of the life of Christ through that experience with them. And I'm sure you all have experienced this. When you're around people who are walking very closely and have a deep intimacy with Jesus, they resemble Jesus and you want to be around them a little bit more. It's attractive. It's life-giving. It's warm. It's beautiful. But Jesus' life doesn't get put on pause. We don't just see those wonderful interactions of warmth and tenderness and love and just bottle it up. It all is leading somewhere. And so we see the beauty of our Savior, but it's not too long after we see the beauty of our Savior in this text where we see the cost of our salvation the cost of our salvation. So part of his beauty is that he has no need to offer sacrifices continually. He has no sin of his own to offer sacrifices for. But he's a priest, so he does offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And he did this once for all, and these four words are just staggering. When we think of the value of Jesus as a person, the beauty of his character in the world, these are staggering words. He offered up himself. The sacrifice that Jesus as the high priest makes is his own life. He offers himself up. He offers his own blood, instead of the blood of an animal. And it's perfect, it's holy, it's innocent, it's pure. And he does that once for all. Is that a waste? We know, if you've been in the church enough, you know it's not a waste. But I want to enter back into the mystery of that moment, where you have Jesus the person walking the earth, doing these amazing things. And think about being Zacchaeus and having that experience of Jesus' warmth and his beauty happen in your house and then watching him go and willingly offer himself up to be crucified. What a waste. But we know it's not a waste. 
It's part of his beauty. His self-sacrifice opens up the way for us to draw near to God. That's what the function of the priest is, is he brings the people near to God. And he does this through his blood. Why his blood? Because he is paying the price of sinners. He is covering with his blood his death. The consequences, the punishment that Zacchaeus deserved, that you deserve, that I deserve, that everyone who has fallen short of perfection deserves. He has opened that way up. And that is a door into the most beautiful thing that we can imagine. And that is the dwelling place of God, the very being of God. That is the way that Jesus opens up for us. So I want to stop here for a minute because this is a really wonderful image to reflect on. And it also applies directly to us as a church, I think. So we're called Portico Church Arlington, right? And we're called Portico because of Solomon's temple. On Solomon's temple, there was a porch or a portico. And the portico was open to whomever wanted to come and draw near to God, but not actually go into the temple. But they could come and learn about God. And it could be anybody, Jew or Gentile. And so you could get so close to God and learn something about him. And so that was the heart in kind of naming our church Portico, is that we wanted to be a place where anybody could come and see God and understand and draw close to who God is. But here is something I want to put to us as a church. I want to put to us a challenge to not stay on the porch. Because the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was fulfilled in Christ. And he has completely opened up the inner sanctuary of his presence for us. The front porch is still important. We should still want to show and demonstrate the goodness of God to this world. But there's a danger if you come up to the front porch and just kind of stick your head in and look in. Oh, that's kind of nice. Those people look like they're enjoying themselves in there. I'm going to hang out here because sometimes they come out here and they bring me a drink, and then I get to talk to them, and it's enjoyable. And I get to learn some things about who God is, and I get to experience the warmth of their community. But friends, that's not why Jesus died. He didn't die so that you could just come to the front porch and live there. He died so that you could enter in to the depths of his very being. And it's scary. It's scary because as you approach a holy God, you become more and more aware of your sin. You become more and more aware that you're not actually worthy to go in to that house. You're not able to enter into the beauty that exists there on your own. 
And so if you haven't trusted the sacrifice, if you haven't identified Jesus as your high priest, you won't go in. You'll draw back. You'll say, you know what? I'm a little bit dirty. I've got to clean myself up first. And then I'll come back and I'll go in. Or maybe I'll just wait and I'll kind of check things out. But like, it's a little bit intense in there. And I'm not sure if I actually need that. There's a, a part of an old Western that I really like. It's not an old Western, but it's in an olden time. Where you have these two cowboys who have been out on the range for a long time. And they're just filthy. And they actually have to go into this doctor's house because one of their friends is getting operated on. And they come into the house, and they're just like dropping mud and who knows what else on the floor. And they're like completely ashamed. And they go back out and sit out on the porch. And there's just rain coming down. And that's how we will act if we need to save ourselves. Because we'll never get all the filth off. We'll never deal completely with the guilt. We'll never deal with the shame of our sin. Because we can't. Everything, even our best efforts, even our good works are tainted. And so we are completely dependent on Jesus to do that for us. And so how do you enter that door? It's trusting him. It's trusting that you walk through that door, not on your own, but covered in the blood of this sacrifice, that you are cleansed completely by it. And that's where the beauty of our Savior comes back, and we are reminded of the power of his blood uniquely able to do this because it's holy, innocent, unstained separated from sinners and exalted. And so we see this beauty fully expressed in Jesus' redemption for us, his sacrifice of himself for us. And here is what I want to put to us as a church, as individual believers, like, First, if you have not done that yet, if you've just been hanging out on the porch and you haven't actually gone in and communed with God in a way in which you are completely trusting Jesus with all of you, then you need to do that to actually enter into the beauty of it. Otherwise, it won't last. It'll disappear. And then for all of us Christians, here is the other thing about our lives is we never stop doing this. We never stop kind of like going in and then we'll kind of like step back out to the front porch. And we do it with different parts, right? So we're like, okay, yeah, I, I know that, that the blood of Jesus covers and cleanses my work life and how I don't work perfectly, but I don't know if he can handle my sex life. I know that the blood of Jesus covers my anger, but what about my greed? I know that the blood of Jesus covers my 
spiritual life, but what about my physical life? I know that the blood of Jesus redeems my emotions, but what about my thoughts? You see, the thing about Jesus' sacrifice and it being once for all is that through his blood, every square inch of you is redeemed. He wants all of it in that house. So continue to go back there. Continue to work that out and experience it for the rest of your life because that is the beauty you're longing for. The end of this poem of Ode on a Grecian Urn, it kind of is controversial, but it drops this controversial or confusing phrase that's a little bit of an enigma. It says, truth is beauty. And we don't know if at this point if it's the person looking at the urn speaking to the urn or if the urn now has a voice and is speaking to the person observing it. He says, truth is beauty, beauty truth. That's all you know on earth and all you need to know. That sounds nice, but don't think about it for too long. Because if you think about it for too long, our mortality will kind of chip away at that urn. And is it actually beautiful? Because the question that it presents is the question of nihilism. It's a question of nothingness. It's the question of things ending and there being nothing afterwards. And the question is, if things end... If we can't stop time, then does it matter? Does beauty matter? Does truth matter? And this is why the end of this passage is going to enter us into the fullness of experiencing the new covenant. I'm using that, we'll get there. That's the word of oath. It's in chapter eight, so we're gonna have to wait a couple weeks to get there. But what it's pushing to is that not only did Jesus die once and for all, but his death, it stopped time because he's resurrected. Here's how it stops time. He is raised to eternal life because he is a son and he's made perfect forever. And this is the beauty, not only the beauty, but the goodness of Jesus, of who God is. It's not only beautiful and true, but it's good because it lasts. He is made perfect forever, and because he's our high priest, we will be made perfect forever. We are being made perfect as he is perfect forever. This will not end. Everything else might end, but this will not end. Because this isn't a cold urn that's going to one day break down and become dust and fade with everything else that time destroys. But this is a resurrected, living mosaic. And friends, this is the purpose of your salvation. It's to be that living mosaic of God's glory of his beauty. All of the redeemed, as they are raised to newness of life, 
they portray the most beautiful thing that we can imagine. And that is intimacy with God, nearness to God, a people who are transformed and made beautiful in the likeness of Christ. And we experience that now, gradually, but we experience it fully and perfectly when Jesus returns. And that's why the author of Hebrews is continually pushing us to endure, to persevere, to keep going, to hold fast, because he knows what's coming. He knows that this is the future of God's people. So draw near to him. Trust Christ as your high priest to draw you near to God because that is the beauty that your soul longs for and desires and will one day be fully satisfied. Please pray with me. Father, this is... um, It's something that transcends our ability to fully grasp or to describe. Your word brings it to us in little digestible bits, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you can say to us that Jesus has offered up himself for us, that we can know what that means because he lived it, and he died, and he rose again. And so, God, I ask that all of us, that we would stop and that we would soak that in, that we wouldn't just engage it on the level of information, but that we would actually be moved to trust Jesus again and again and again with everything that we are. And, Lord, we thank you that you don't just want to redeem part of us, even though that is probably what we want at first, but that you want to redeem everything everything about who we are to make it new. And God, we look forward to experiencing that gradually in this life and then finally and perfectly in eternity when our Lord returns. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.